0: Good morning, everyone. Welcome. My name is Jimmy, and I'm a pastor here at Red Door. And it is my great pleasure and privilege, as always, to be speaking the Word to you this morning. I think uh, God has been teaching me a lot about rest and resetting and grace-paced living. And so I'm really excited to teach you and share with you from the Word um, what God has to say. But I do have an important question to ask you first up. Have any of you ever ran a marathon before? Just hands up if you've run a marathon. Dev, you didn't run a marathon. You ran a triathlon. That's much shorter. Okay? So we are what I want to call Proverbs 28 runners, right? You might have heard of a Proverbs 31 wife. Proverbs 28 says, only the wicked run when no one is chasing them, right? We are wholeheartedly believers in that. Wicked aren't chasing us. We're not running, okay? Okay? But here's the thing. There is actually important lessons to be learned from marathons and endurance events. One of the most important lessons you can learn from endurance events is this idea of pacing. The speed at which you go. The greatest thing that will make sure you don't finish a marathon or a triathlon or any endurance event is the speed at which you start out with. Can you maintain it? It's the difference between finishing and not finishing. If you go too slow, you'll never have a chance of winning, and you'll never challenge yourself. But if you go too fast, you'll blow up and not finish the race. In cycling, we have this term called the red zone. All right? And that's because we wear lycra and have to come up with these terms to make ourselves seem cooler. All right? My wife laughs because she knows how uncool it is to wear lycra. She has to watch me. The red zone is simply when you're at your absolute maximum output. It is a place that you cannot hold for very long. If you can hold it for four minutes, five minutes, you're doing well because as soon as you go past, there's a a limit. As soon as you go past it, you're blown up. It's game over. If you've watched the Tour de France and you see some of the cyclists look like they're going backwards down the hills, that's what's happened. They've 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 operated too long in the red zone and they've blown up. It's like putting jet fuel in a Commodore. You're going to go really fast for a really short amount of time and then things are going to explode. Right? That's the red zone. And I wonder as I look upon our lives and the way that we're living our lives, if we're in danger of the same thing, if we've been operating at the absolute maximum output and we're in great danger of blowing up. The pace that we're living so much of our lives is breakneck, and I wonder if it's breaking us. So here's a question for you. What pace do you think Jesus lived his life at? Dallas Willard is an American theologian, and he once asked a class to come up with, what's one word that describes Jesus the best? And there's, there's lots, to be honest. Jesus was kind and loving. He was gracious. He was courageous. And he stood up to the powerful. He loved the lonely and the lesser, the outer. But Dallas came up with his own word. He said that Jesus was relaxed. And there's a huge part of me that doesn't really like that word, relaxed. It sounds inadequate to describe the person of Jesus. And yet, as I think about his ministry, about the way that he lived his life, it actually seems rather fitting. Jesus started his ministry after 30 years. A patient man. The first thing he did in his ministry was head out into the desert He wasn't going to the the main places, the cities. He went out into the desert. He was led into the desert. On his way to do miracles and healings, he was slow. He was relaxed on the way to the synagogue official's daughter. He was relaxed on the way to see Lazarus to the point that Lazarus died whilst Jesus was diverting himself. He was just relaxed. And Jesus often just took himself away from the crowds to the point that there was one occasion that the disciples left him behind. Jesus was relaxed. And I wonder if the reason that we don't like that word relaxed when it comes to Jesus is because the pace that he lived out his life at is actually strange and foreign to us. Because when you, talk, when you ask each other, how's your week been? How are you going? What's the two most common answers? Tired, Busy. And busy isn't just a season, it's actually become a way of life for us. So it's become our persona. I'm tired, I'm busy. There's a quote by A.J. Swoboda that I think sums us up well on the screen. He says, Our time-saving devices, our technological conveniences, and cheap mobility have seemingly made life much easier and interconnected. As a result, we have more information at our fingertips than anyone in history. Yet with all this progress, we are ominously dissatisfied. In bowing at these sacred altars of hyperactivity, progress, and technological compulsivity, our souls increasingly pant for meaning and value and truth as they wither away exhausted, frazzled, displeased, ever on an edge. The result is a hollow culture that, in Paul's words, is ever learning, but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. And the next page... Our bodies wear ragged, our spirits thirst. We have an inability to simply sit still and be. As we drown ourselves in a 24-7 living, we seem to be able to do anything but quench our true thirst for God. We have become perhaps the most emotionally exhausted, psychologically overworked and spiritually malnourished people in history. Let that sit for a moment. The thing is, I know that I'm not immune to this. Pastors aren't immune to this. In fact, if you look at ministry statistics, you'll know that being a pastor is a pretty brutal job. Um, pastor Jono has been a, a minister for over 10 years now, and from his graduating class in Ridley, there's maybe two or three people still left in ministry. There is an enormous body count. So it's not just like, well, we're super spiritual, and so we're good. We feel the pain as much as anyone I was really affected by the story of a guy called Andrew Stockland who was a pastor in Chino Hills um, in California. His father died at the age of 55 and Andrew took over the church and in over the, the months after his father's death he started having panic attacks, depression, he was burnt out, frazzled. All the things that Swoboda was talking about and his elders requested him to take four months sabbatical. So four months completely off, no work, complete rest. When he came back, he gave a haunting sermon called Life in the Cave about pressure and stress. And he said this, It's not easy to be a pastor's wife. She sees all of the behind the scenes and especially through this journey that's been really difficult. I have not been a very fun and easy person to live with. His wife said this, we still have a long way to go to work through it, but we are all in. You guys, he loves this place so much. He didn't want to stop. He would have kept on going and going and going and going, and it probably would have cost him his life. That's how much he loves all of you. That's how much he loves this place. Two weeks later, Andrew Stockland took his own life. The pace of life that he was living at was breaking him he can recognize this and yet cannot stop and i think the reason why it hits home so much for me is that i recognize so much of myself in that story the reason so many of us don't don't stop don't live at a pace that is that is maintainable isn't because we're lazy or because we're I don't know, addicted it's because we actually love what we do that's a problem The pace that we're living our lives at is breaking us emotionally, physically, and spiritually. And the truth is that Jesus is not glorified. He's not seen as beautiful when his disciples and his followers are just as burnt out and broken as the people around them in the world. It's just not. You know what kind of person I want to meet? I want to come meet the kind of person who you ask them how they are, and you're like, if I had one word to describe my life at the moment, it's margin. I have an abundance of time. I'm just, I just feel so rested. Right? Wouldn't that kind of person be so incredibly alluring? Wouldn't you just want to spend time with them and get to know that kind of person? I have space, I have time, I have margin, I'm rested. You'd be like, what's your secret? They'd be like, ah, I have, I have living water. Would you like to meet him? Right? That would be so incredibly attractive. And so I want us to get back here. I want us to experience that. So here's my honest question. How are you going at the moment? How's, how's the state of your soul? Are you feeling like you could live this pace for the next five years, 10 years, 15 years, 30 years? Do you think this is sustainable for you? Or are you a little bit like me? I'm, I'm thinking, okay, just get through this week. If we can get through this week, that's, a, that's, a, that's an A+. plus right? I'm not preaching from a mountaintop experience. I'm tired, right? I'm rested, but I want this. I want this so badly for myself. I want this so badly for you, because I do believe that God has true rest, a better rest than what we're experiencing. And I want it deeply, and so I want to explore what God has to say about it. And that's what we're going to be doing over the next couple of weeks. In my own uh, personal devotion uh, over the last couple of weeks, I I was reading Psalm 46, which is this great psalm about God's calmness in the chaos. And yet, Psalm 46 says this Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted amongst the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. And it struck me as I was reading this in my devotion how closely those two ideas are linked being still and knowing God. Being still gives us space and margin and time to remind ourselves who God is and knowing who God is releases us from the pressure to be all the kind of things that take away from our ability to be still. And I, I, I was sitting there and I was thinking, what have, what have I forgotten about God that's meant that I, I can't be still anymore? What is, what is holding me down that I can't be still there's, it's not it's not only what we do that causes tiredness and burnout and exhaustion, it's also what we believe. It's also truths that we know or truths that we've forgotten. What's the, what's the first thing we learn about God in Genesis? Like the very first thing. I'm looking for answers. You can can answer. Right? What's the first thing we learn? What was that, Nalene? creator he created the world and i think we've actually forgotten that because the very first truth in the bible helps us rest well it's the first jenga block that we may have forgotten so friends i'm going to pray and then we're going to get into genesis 1 so i'd love it for you to bow your heads god we just thank you for your word and we come to you as a tired people this morning, as a burnt out people, as an exhausted people, I pray that you would have water and life for our souls, that we would find ourselves restored as we meditate upon you, as we dwell upon you, that we would find rest. God, release us from the things that have captured our attention. Help us slow down. We pray this in your spirit and to your glory. Amen. So there's five things that I think we need to be reminded of in the book of Genesis that are going to help us to rest, to relax, and to experience what God has in mind for us. And the first one might not be so strange or surprising, but it is super important. It is this. God is big. Let's read the first line. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Let's pause there. We are so quick to skip over this. In the beginning, God created everything. He created the heavens and the earth. This is something that we're meant to pause over, to dwell on, to meditate upon. If you look throughout the rest of the Old Testament, they come back to this again and again and again. It's meant to make us go, whoa, wow, that's incredible. If you look at um, Psalm eight, it says, "says this, Lord, our Lord, how magnificent is your name throughout the earth? You have covered the heavens with your majesty." From the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have established a stronghold on account of your adversaries in order to silence the enemy and the avenger. Now read this. When I observe your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you set in place, what is a human being that you remember him? A son of man that you look after him? The psalmist is looking at the sky and literally going, I don't get it. Like You're so big. You're so incredible. Isaiah says it like this. For as heaven is higher than earth, so my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. So often the Bible wants us to be reminded that God is big. And we can couch that up in really uh, theological language, like God is omnipotent and omniscient, but I think children's songs have it best. I actually think that if we sung more children's songs, we would be reminded of these life-giving truths because one of the first songs that I learned as a kid is, my God is so big, so strong and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. That's right. We're going to sing it later so you can have a better attempt then. Okay? We forget that God is so big. And so we hustle and we hurry and we work ourselves because we are worried that if we don't, no one will. We simply forget that God created us and that he is big and powerful. Growing up, my, one of my favorite football players of the last 30 years, I can say that, I'm 29, I'm almost 30. One of my favorite football players was a, was a ruckman called Ivan Marich. Now, uh, Dennis Cometty once described the running style of Ivan Marich as an out-of-control Clydesdale, right? So incredibly funny to look at. But the thing about Ivan Marich that everyone loved is that he had the world's biggest mullet, right? He, was, um, he had a mullet for the entirety of his time as Richmond almost. And we just loved it. I loved watching him because everyone stood taller when the mullet was around, we always say, don't mess with the mullet. And one of the, the things that has just been ingrained into my memory banks is this photo of Ivan Marich. So there was a, there was a match between Collingwood and Richmond in 2012, and uh, there was an all-in brawl at halftime. So every player, 44 players from every single team are getting into it. They're pushing and shoving. There's fists. There's suspensions afterwards. And yet Ivan Marich is in the middle because no one wants to mess with the mullet. Right? The reason I loved him was because when Ivan Marich was around, every single Richmond player walked a little bit taller. They got to say, I'm with that guy. Don't mess with me. You're going to have to mess with the mullet, right? But every single Christian can say something much, much greater because as we are reminded that God is big, we get to say, I'm with that guy. Not Ivan Marich, the Croatian mullet. Right? I am with the God who created the heavens and the earth and everything within it. I am with the guy who knows all things, is everywhere, and is all-powerful. That's the God that I follow. I'm with that guy. And knowing that I'm with that guy actually leads us to rest. Because he's big and he's powerful. He is not limited so Christian, remember that God is big. The second thing I want it to remind us of is that God is good. It's a familiar refrain in the book of Genesis. God created something and it was good. God created something, and it was awesome. God created something, and it was excellent. There's no absence of, of perfection in what God's doing. He created the, the light and the day, and it was good. He created the earth, and it was good. He created the sky, and it was good. He created the, the lights, and they were good. He created the animals, and they were good. He created the birds, and in spite of what my, my Sarah believes about birds, it was good. Right? Emus, good. Right? Magpies, good. God created the creatures, and it was good. God created us, and it was very good. And then God does something very strange on the seventh day. He rests. I don't know if you've ever thought about the fact that God rested on the seventh day, because it, actually the more you think about it, it's strange, especially if you consider what we've just been reminded, that God is big and powerful. He doesn't need to rest. He's all-powerful. There's no time where God's like, "Well, create the world today. I probably need a Smoko, right? Doesn't exist. God's not limited like that. So, why on earth does God rest? What happened on day six? What did God create on the sixth day of creation? Us. The very first day that Adam and Eve enjoyed on the earth was a complete day of rest. They have not earned it, they have not done anything to rest from. It's a gift from God. God rests as a gift to us. And it just reminds us how good he is. It's, it's astonishing how strange this is if you look at other creation narratives. So there's a, there's a Babylonian um, creation narrative called the Enumeralish. It's not like this. There's death and destruction and chaos. It doesn't look like this. The Christian creation story is the only creation story that builds work into it and yet has a framework for rest built into the very heart of it. God gives rest to us as a gift and it reveals the goodness of God. God is good. God gives you the gift of rest and he wants you to have it. He wants you to enjoy it. It's not a booby prize. It's just not. He wants you to rest as a reminder of how good He is. Number three, God is in control. We are a reformed church. That means that we put a high price on reading the scriptures. We put a high price on the sovereignty of God, how in control God is. And you would have heard that, Jono talked about recently in our um, gifted series that we are reformed, sacramental, and charismatic. And if you want to, Investigate more? Have a look at that. It was a good, good sermon, good series. But we are a reformed church. We hold tightly under the fact that God is in control. And growing up for me, I was a really, um, not, not part of, but really attracted to this new reformed movement in the 2000s right it was a powerful idea this re um reimagination of, of reformed theology or calvinism so it was known as um new reformed movement or new calvinism or uh, my favorite which was the young restless and uh, the yeah the young restless and reformed which sort of sounds like a, a theological version of the bold and the beautiful doesn't it welcome to the young restless and reformed this week no And it's interesting, it even made it onto Time magazine as one of the ten ideas that's changing the world right now in 2009. The new Calvinism, this idea that God is big and sovereign and powerful. And yet, if you look at the fruits of it, many of the pastors that were part of the new reform movement are no longer in the ministry or have disgraced themselves. Many of them have come out to deny the faith. There's lots of them that are continuing on strong, love Jesus, keep moving on. But um, John Tyson, who's a pastor in America, said one of the great ironies and the great sadnesses of the new reform movement, this movement that loved the sovereignty of God, that loved how in control God, loved talking about the, the power of God, the glory of God, one of the saddest things about it was that they knew the sovereignty of God and did not practice it. They knew that God was in control, and yet they did not practice it. They did not sit in it. They did not meditate upon it. They did not dwell in it. They they were not able to release themselves from having to do and do and do until they were burnt out. They knew that God was sovereign, and yet they did not practice it. Hebrew scholar Matachahu Savet says this Not that one. Um, Do we have, it might be a, a couple of slides back there, the basic meaning of the biblical Sabbath of the rest that God intends for us is the acceptance of the sovereignty of God. God, you are in control and I am not, therefore I will put down my hurrying, my hassling, my hustle and sit. I can release because you are in control. Friends, don't just believe the sovereignty of God, practice it. And you might go, well, what does that look like? Well, read Matthew chapter 6. Therefore I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink or about your body, what you will wear. Isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing? Consider the birds of the sky. They don't sow or reap or gather into barns that your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you worth more than they are? Can any of you add one moment to his lifespan by worrying? And why do you worry about clothes? Observe how the wildflowers of the field grow. They don't labour or spin thread, yet I tell you they're not even Solomon. In all his splendour was adorned like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and thrown into the furnace tomorrow, won't he do much more for you, you of little faith? So don't worry saying what we will eat or what will we drink or what will we wear. That's the practice of the sovereignty of God. It's saying, God, you're in control. I trust you. Therefore, I can stop. This is your creation, your creator. I will cease and slow down. I will rest. I was in um, a seminar once, and it struck me. um, I can't remember who was speaking, and she said, The reason Christians rest is because it's the one time we stop trying to earn God's approval. Either God loves us or he doesn't. I think that's a great thing to think about. We can stop because God is in control. Number four, things that we can get from the creation narrative is perhaps good or bad news for us, potentially, we think. We are limited. God is creator and we are his creation. In some sense, we are lesser than God. Not in some sense, in many senses. In almost all of the senses, we are limited. There are things that we cannot do. I am not all-powerful. I'm not even all-good. right? Ask Sarah. She can tell me about all the ways that I'm not all-good. And so I'm, I'm, we are just lesser than God. And yet, if you look through our human history, it's the attempt to unlimit ourselves that has often caused heartache and broken backs. I was really taken by the story of Thomas Edison. He's a famous inventor. Okay, So how many of you know why Thomas Edison invented the light bulb? Does anyone know? Anyone read that that story? No? Thomas Edison invented the light bulb because he hated the idea of sleep. He wanted to get rid of sleep. So he invented the light bulb in, I think, 1879. Let me check my notes. I hate getting facts wrong. Yep, so in 1879, he invented the light bulb. In an 1889 uh, interview, he boasted that he only got four hours of sleep a night. Four hours of sleep was his boast. He said that everyone should follow his, 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 his route. Everyone should get only four hours of sleep a night. And in 1914, he said there is no reason any man should ever go to bed. Right? So, can, we, can we go back one? There's this, this wonderful article uh, written by Olga Kazan, Thomas Edison and the Cult of Sleep Deprivation, which, interestingly, is probably the worst cult ever. If that's the cult you're joining, don't join that one. Okay, join a better cult. This is a quote from the article. We can go to the next, next slide. Sleep loss is most common amongst older workers and amongst those who earn little and work multiple jobs. Still about a quarter of people in the top income quintile report regularly being short on sleep and sleep deprivation across all income groups has been rising. A group of sleep researchers recently told the BBC that people are now getting one or two hours less, than, less shut-eye each night than they did 60 years ago, primarily because of the encroachment of work and the proliferation of blue light emitting electronics. That's your phone, people. Oxford University Professor Russell Foster said this, We are the supremely arrogant species. We feel we can abandon four billion years of evolution and ignore the fact that we have evolved under a light-dark cycle. These problems include well-documented correlations with heart disease, diabetes, obesity, and accidents. At the time that Edison invented the light bulb, the average hours of sleep was 11. What do you think it is now? Six, seven. So we've lost, over the last 100 years, four hours of sleep on average from every single person. Do you know how angry you would be if someone stole four hours from you? You'd just be so upset. We're upset at daylight saving when we lose one hour. So here's a question: Why aren't you better than you are? Like, why aren't you just better than you are? We live in a culture that is more advanced than any before. We have more information in our fingertips. We have more opportunity to progress to better ourselves, and we're just not better. Perhaps is it because we're limited? because we actually have limits that are in place to help us. I think of the story in in creation, and we're going to skip ahead a little bit to Genesis chapter 3, and the story of Adam and Eve, and the fall of mankind. It says, The woman, that is Eve, said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, You must not eat it or touch it or you will die. No, you will not die, the serpent said to the woman. Now, just read this. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What undid Adam and Eve in the garden wasn't just pride. It was a desire to be unlimited like God. It was a forgetfulness about how God has actually made them with limits. It was better for them not to be like God in this instance. You were not created to be productive. If you want to be productive, buy a machine. Machines are productive. Buy a laptop. It'll be far more productive than you are. It doesn't have the same limitations. You are so limited. Right? You have blood and sweat and tears. You need to eat every eight hours a day. You need to sleep every night or things get hectic. Right? You need to go to the toilet like every four to five hours. Do you know how unproductive that is, how limiting it is? You are limited. We are limited. We're not designed to be productive. And I think that, yeah, we want to progress. We want to better ourselves. But I think so much of our hustling, of our hurry, of our hard work comes from the fact that we don't like the limits that are placed on us. So we work harder and we play harder, and then things fall apart. If you don't respect the limitations of the design, that's what happens. If anyone has ever driven in my car, you know that I have not respected the limitations of my car design, right? There's currently four kilometers of petrol in my tank, right? So what's going to happen to my car? It's going to fall apart. I don't respect the limitations. It's going to fall apart. If you don't respect the limitations that God has given you, right, you're going to fall apart. We get sick. We get burnt out. We get tired. We get exhausted. We get grumpy. We have limitations. It'd be a worthwhile activity to think about all the ways that you're limited. We don't like to think about it, but we are. The last one, and an important one to end on. Christian, despite your limitations, you are deeply and profoundly loved by God. I just want to read out this section from Paul Tripp. He says this. The color of your eyes, the shape of your body, your intellectual and physical gifts, your hair, your voice, your personality, the color of your skin, the size of your feet, everything. All of your hardwiring is the result of God's glorious creative ability. The package that created you comes from His hand. Now, as familiar as all of this is, it is nonetheless important. I'm deeply persuaded that whilst many of us worship God as creator on Sunday, we curse his work during the week. Most of us harbour dissatisfaction with who God has made us to be. There are times in our lives when we secretly wish we could rise to the throne of creation and remake ourselves in the image of what we would like to be. One of the driving forces behind so much of our hard work, our hustle and our hurry is the simple fact that we don't like who we are. We don't like the shape of our body. We don't like the job that we have. We don't like the relationships that we're in. We don't like who we are. And so we wake up early and we go to the gym or we ride or we eat less or we diet. We don't like the jobs that we have. So we work twice as hard as anybody else so we can get a job that could finally mean that I actually like who I am. I I can respect myself now. But Christian, God loves you. Just have a look at the way that God talks about his creation when he created humans. It's in Genesis 1. God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created the male and female. God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. God also said, look, I've given you every seed-bearing plant on the surface of the entire earth and every tree whose fruit contains seed. This will be food for you. For all the wildlife, for every bird of the sky and for every creature that crawls on the earth, everything having the breath of life, I've given every green plant for food. And it was so. And this is what he says next. God saw all that he had made and it was very good. In creation, God makes the earth... He makes the seas, he makes the animals, he makes the birds, he makes the fish, and yet it's not until he makes us that he says, Very good. When God created you, he created you as very good. You don't need to remake yourself or remodel yourself or reshape yourself to be loved by God. You were created to be loved. And in fact, if you're a Christian, that is, someone who trusted Jesus, this is even more true for you than it was just in the creation story. I love what Romans 8 has to say about those who are in Christ. For I am persuaded that not even death or life, angels or rulers, things present or things to come, hostile powers, height or depth, or any other created thing will have the power to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Christian you are loved. So stop the hard work that fuels so much of your that is fueled by so much of your dissatisfaction about your body shape or your position in life, and just sit and rest in the fact that you, despite all your limitations, despite all the ways that you fall short, are deeply and profoundly loved by God. You are created to be loved, you are created to be known. And you are created to be loved. Dwell on it. Sit on this fact. It would be an incredibly restorative and redemptive thing if once a week we would just sit on the fact that God is big and that God is powerful and that God is in control and that God is good and that although we are limited, we are loved. What hustle and hurry and hard work they all do They just take our eyes off the prize. They're not bad things. They're good things. Work is a gift from God. The problem is if we work too much, it becomes a curse because it takes our eyes off who gives work. And so here's my encouragement for you, Christian. Rest, knowing that God is big. He holds the whole world in his hands and your life is not too hard for him to hold. Christian, rest. God is good. His intentions for you are good. Trust him. Christian, remember that God is in control. Practice the sovereignty of God. Practice just meditating upon how God is in control. Just say that again and again to yourself God is in control. I can't see the end, but I trust him. I know that he's big and he's powerful and that he's not forgotten me. I'm going to sit in that knowledge for a second. Christian, remember that you're limited. You cannot be all things to all people all of the time. You're not designed to be productive. You're designed to be worshippers. So do that. Remember who's your creator and who is his creation. But Christian, rest in the fact that you're loved. You don't need to improve yourself. You don't need to lose 10 kilos. You don't need to gain 10 kilos. You don't need to be married or single. You don't need to have kids or no kids. You don't have to change anything about the fact that if you're in Christ... If you trust Jesus, you're deeply and profoundly loved and nothing can change that and nothing can take that away from you. So Christian, rest. Let us stop living at this breakneck pace, this pace that we've been discipled by the culture to live because God has a different way and I want us to experience that. Let me pray. God, I just want to thank you for your word. I want to thank you that as we examine it, it actually releases us. It releases us from the need to be something we're not. And it releases us from lesser things that we look at and meditate on. And gets to see. we just get to see and behold your bigness and your greatness. This week, God, help us to stop. Help us to slow down. Help us to remember who you are. That you are big, that you are strong, that you are good, and that you are in control. Help us to remember who we are, that we are not God, that we do have limitations. It's okay to have limitations. Help us be reminded of that, but help us be reminded as well that in our limitations, we are deeply and profoundly loved by God. We pray this in his precious name. Amen.